This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So as a health coach and consultant, I'm interested in huge shifts in my clients' behaviors and in their outcomes. Really, the word that comes to mind for me a lot is transformation. And for me, a transformation has three characteristics. First of all, it's permanent. I know so many people who've done amazing things. They've lost 100 pounds. They've gotten into great shape. And then over time, that degrades. And eventually, after a year, year and a half, two years, they're right back where they started. And of course, they're not. They're much more demoralized because they went through all that effort for nothing, or so they think. So a transformation has to be permanent. Second, a transformation has to be resilient, meaning it can't be wobbly when things change. The the change has to be so centered within who you are that when you go to a different place, you experience a different social situation, you're, you're under different stresses, that that new you can withstand whatever stress without straining and breaking. And third, the transformation has to be meaningful it has to lead to significantly different outcomes. And those are rare. And they're like, you know, lightning in a bottle. When you, when you see them, you want to st- kind of study them. And one of the things I like to do is talk to people whose business it is to generate transformations like that in their clients, because they are the ones who have a methodology and an understanding and are able to get reproducible results. And that's where this week's Plant Yourself podcast guest, Nina Cook, comes in. Nina is a business coach or life coach or coach. Um, She helps people, mostly entrepreneurs, uh, grow their businesses. And I met her through my friend Rob, whom I've known for a decade. And Rob said after a few sessions with Nina, he was able to overcome a whole bunch of internal obstacles and grew his business quickly and phenomenally. And Rob is a smart guy, and he's been working hard for years, so it wasn't lack of talent, lack of knowledge, lack of skill, or lack of effort that was holding him back. It was something else. And so I asked him, like, what, what is that thing? And he said, well, why don't you meet with Nina and see for yourself? So I reached out. Nina offered me two hours of her time, and we went into some of my issues, my limiting beliefs. And what I came away with was a sense that what Nina goes for in her coaching is the deepest roots of our behaviors, our thoughts and our beliefs. And if we can change our thoughts and our beliefs, which is easier said than done, especially if you don't really have a methodology for doing that, if we can change our thoughts and our beliefs, then we can change our behaviors. Now, Nina has never really worked with anyone in the health field. So I was very curious as to how she would think about applying her work and her philosophy to health behaviors. And that's what we talked about during this interview. So without further ado, Nina Cook, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for having me on. So you uh, call yourself like a a coach who helps people with their mindset. And I wanted to talk to you uh, because, you know, a lot of what I do and a lot of the, the movement I'm part of does is get people to be healthier. And part of that, as we all know, is, is lifestyle and dietary choices and exercise and stress management. And it's basically a whole bunch of actions and behaviors. And we don't always do the things that we want to do or think we should do, right? Absolutely. Yes. We trip ourselves up again and again, don't we? So that's that's kind of what I want to explore with you over over this interview. But but first, let's let's lay out the groundwork and say like, why why am I talking to you? Who who you are? Uh, what you do? And what your story is? Well, I work with clients who want to be who want to have better results in their life. So it could be around business, it can be in their relationships, whatever they feel is a challenge for them, and they feel that something's not quite right. So with business owners, often they've tried different things. They've tried you know, new marketing or maybe um, you know, having a team working around them or different processes, and things don't quite seem to be working out or going in the direction that they want. And they're starting to think, actually, it may be something internal. It may be something that's going on between my ears that's keeping me stuck and stopping me from having the life that I want. And I help them to 
find out exactly what that block is and it's different for everyone. But what I've found to be a common thread with everyone I've worked with, and I think it's a common thread with every single person on this earth, is that they are acting, behaving, feeling, doing from the thoughts they have going on inside of them. And often they think it's the things outside of them that are making them feel a certain way, making them feel unhappy, sad, frustrated, angry, whatever it is, when actually it's their thoughts about what's going on outside of them that's causing them to feel like this. So it's always, always an inside job, 100% of the time. And you and I could sit here and discuss this for the next five hours throwing backwards and forwards, is it always our thoughts that create our reality of the world out there? And I believe we would come to the conclusion that actually we've looked at it every single way from all angles. And yes, it is our thoughts always that create the results we're getting in our lives. And I find that completely fascinating. And so I work with clients to find out exactly what thoughts they're having, why they're thinking a certain way about life, because that's getting them the results that they're getting moment by moment. Mm. I want to I want to come back to that, put a put a little uh, pin in it, but because I, um, I do want to get to you know your your story and your journey to to this realization and what it's meant for you. But I will say I, I was watching a a YouTube video of Marshall Rosenberg, who was the 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 founder of a a movement really and a philosophy called nonviolent communication. And one of the things that he said that really struck me and resonated based on the conversations we've had was that if, you know, in a, in a, in a relationship, say, if you use, you know, use words like with your kids or your spouse to, to imply or to state that they are making you angry, that he regards that as violent communication, as, as an attack, just to, to, for you to uh, give up responsibility for your own emotions and attribute them to somebody else. So that, it sounds very similar. And that's absolutely, I believe that's completely true because when we shift our responsibility, and I believe the responsibility that we shift to someone else is our power, giving away our power and saying, you're making me feel like this, then we are completely not taking responsibility for ourselves. And we are completely responsible 100% for our own thoughts. And it's our own thoughts that are creating our, our emotional state in that moment. It's not what anyone is saying or doing to us. And this seems like a really difficult thing sometimes to to get because it's so easy to blame someone else and say, well, actually, it's because of you. I'm feeling like this. I was absolutely fine. Then you came along and you said that to me. and You've completely ruined my mood now. So it can only be you who's done that. It can't be anyone else. But actually, it's the thoughts we're having about what they're saying to us that's causing us to feel how we feel in that moment. So it's completely our responsibility. So... So let's let's get to you know how your journey, how you got to this place. I'm sure you you speak from personal experience that you you know you didn't uh, arrive on this earth with a uh, a completely clear understanding of the of the difference between reality and your thoughts about reality. What 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 have you gone through? And and maybe you know some some of those stories can point to you know for folks who are listening, like wondering like why we're talking about this, the relationship between that misattribution of thought and reality and how it stops us from from being the people we want to be. Well, to go back to the beginning of my story, I'm Indian and my parents came over from India in the early 60s to settle in, in England and make a better life for themselves and for their children. And I was separated from my family for some very formative years. Between the ages of 18 months to five years, I was sent back to India to live with my mum's extended family. I had a very, very happy time there. And then I was parachuted back into my original family. My first family were living in England with my mum, my dad, my brother and sister. And I felt like a complete stranger coming into a, you know, a completely unique environment. And I felt unloved, unwanted. This isn't to blame my family or anything like that, but this is my perception of it. I felt um, I wasn't, you know, enough, good enough, clever enough, whatever it was. And I grew up with a chronic sense of really no confidence in myself at all. 
And I felt um, I had to stay under the radar, you know, hide away and not be seen. It wasn't safe to be seen and I couldn't voice my opinions. And I just wanted people to like me. I was so worried about what people thought about me and their perception of me and whether I was going to get, you know, fit in, be invited along and included and all of that. And I really just tried to make people like me. So I wanted to say the right things and, and please them and be what they wanted me to be. And um, this led me into all sorts of difficulties, you know, with um, work. I was very worried and scared about authority. I, I didn't, I didn't do, I could have had more promotions at work. I could have done a lot better, but I really kept myself under the radar and played incredibly safe because I just didn't think I was worthy or deserving. And um, these are terms that are used again and again and again, but this is how I truly felt about myself. I felt other people were better than me. I was inferior to them. And um, on the outside, you know, it seemed as if I was coping, you know, quite well. And some people would say, oh, you, you know, you seem quite confident and as if you know what you're doing and all of that. But inside, I felt completely unaligned with myself, that I didn't really know who I was and I didn't feel true to myself at all. I really felt I'd lost sight of who I was or I'd never known who I was. That, that sounds really exhausting. It was exhausting. It was a struggle and I had to use a lot of willpower to come across as if I was okay. But I had a real sense of not being okay and not being good enough. And um, I you know, kept coming across people who seemed very comfortable in their skin and um, seemed to be very magnetic and very charismatic. And I always thought... How do they do that? Are they just born like that? And am I like this? Am I stuck like this? Is it always going to be the same for me? And um, I started reading self-development books. I remember I was once in a bookshop and I think I, it was raining outside and I was sheltering from the rain. And I happened to stand in front of a, 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 a sort of row of books that I hadn't really come across before. And it was a personal development section of the bookshop. I'd never come across anything like this. <laughs> and I remember the first two books I ever bought, this must have been around the late 1980s, was um, Louisa Hay, Heal Your Life, and Susan Jeffers. I can't remember the title of the book, but it's a very, very well-known book. They were, they were my introduction. And I started reading them thinking, ah, oh, so these are all these exercise techniques you can do to start feeling better about yourself. And that led me into years of exploring, reading. I had you know therapy along the way, and some of it helped. It didn't really, really make a huge difference. And I still knew that there was something that... I felt there was something not right about me. And, and then eventually I did um, a course in NLP and hypnotherapy, which was fantastic because it showed me that you can think differently and therefore get different results. And that really helped me, Howie. It really started making a difference. However, it wasn't until by chance um, someone emailed me a link and said, you're interested in limiting beliefs, you know, have a look at this. And it led me to a guy in America called Morty Lefko. And I was really intrigued by what he was saying because he was saying it's your limiting beliefs about you, yourself, and the world that are keeping you stuck and keeping you unhappy. And I knew a little bit about limiting beliefs, but I was interested in what he was saying. And I ended up having some sessions with him one-to-one. -one. And he pulled out of me. He identified my biggest limiting beliefs I had about myself, which were all things around worthiness, you know, not feeling good enough, feeling unlovable, feeling I'm not important. And he actually pulled them out. They were deeply hidden within me. And he sort of brought them out into broad daylight so I could look at them. And then he helped me to challenge and eliminate them. And I was very sceptical. I thought, this isn't going to work. Other stuff I've tried hasn't worked. Nothing works for me. I'm a really tough case. But slowly I started noticing changes and things that were worrying me or that I wouldn't I wouldn't even see in my existence suddenly became apparent to me. And I thought, well, I'm not reacting in the same way to that, or I'm thinking about this in a different way. And slowly the cumulative effect of eliminating by my beliefs, literally one by one, has been extremely powerful. And um, I did this a few years ago, and then I went on to train with him because I thought I can really, if this has worked for me, it can help me work with my clients and help them in the same way. And that's what I've been doing. I've been working with my clients to help them eliminate their deepest hidden, hidden limiting beliefs so they can feel differently about themselves and um, find life easier and more exciting. 
Mm-hmm. So let's let's um, table for a second how we do that and how it works and why it works, and kind of make a uh, a connection for folks between limiting beliefs and let's let's say talk specifically about health behaviors, health outcomes. So someone who's like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the gym, I'm gonna start working out, or yeah, I've got to get this crappy food out of my diet, and. Is, there is a connection, right, between these really deep, unseen um, beliefs about ourselves, about unworthiness or failure or stuff like that, that, you know, we, we don't immediately look for. We go, well, you're addicted to sugar, so we're going to do this, or you have, you know, these social influences, so we're going to re-engineer your environment. But this is really deep stuff. Can you make a connection for us between these beliefs and our health behaviors? Okay, well, I think that there's something going on between our identity and who we are. So if we suddenly start losing weight, if we suddenly start getting fit, that changes our perception of who we are and how we're seen. And I think for some people it can be quite scary to suddenly stop being who they are and take on a new identity, as it were. And that scariness can stop them from going into this new realm, if you like, and going out of their comfort zone. So say someone is um, unhealthy and um, they want to lose some weight. If they lost weight, who would they be? They would be someone different. And say they're not, they can't you know, find a relationship that works for them. If they were to lose weight and feel great and look as good as they could and they still didn't get that relationship, they wouldn't be able to blame their weight anymore. They would have to look hard, deep at themselves and think, why isn't this happening for me? So I think it can be um, a really great way of staying under the radar and not putting your hand up and saying, actually, I want this, because it's just an easy thing to hide behind. Hmm. And I'm imagining that if, if you think you're unworthy of, you know, the, the rewards of the world, of a, of a good job, a fulfilling career, the love of, of people, then you're probably not feeling worthy of good health either. You're not feeling worthy of good health. And yeah, it's feeling that you don't deserve it. You're not worthy of it. But also, it's very nice to stick to your victim story as well. And people are like this to me because, you know, they think, I you know, they think I'm overweight or um, I don't. It, it's just a very, it's much easier to stay within the comfort of where you are then to do something different and see where that's going to take you. And sometimes it can be the hardest step to take to feel that you can actually achieve something differently because you've never done it before and it seems so hard to do. But all it is is your thought process that's taking you and keeping you there. So if we can, if some people can lose weight easily or they can just take up a new exercise regime because their thinking is, this is something that I can do. For someone who's not doing that, who's resisting it for some reason, all that's happening is their thoughts are saying, this is something that could be scary, it may not work, and you know, who would I be if I lost weight or started eating healthily? And all of these negative thinking is keeping them stuck. But when people know that all it is is a thought that's stopping them from doing that, and that thought can change in one in the next second. All it is is a thought that's stopping them from doing that. And there's nothing on the outside that's stopping them. It's simply an internal thought process. Then it's so much easier just to just to do it. Okay. So so the uh, the sort of the historian and epidemiologist in me wants to wants to push back a little bit to say that, you know, for, for most of human history, people weren't overweight. Um and so, are, you know, it, it's, it's not just the thought, right? So that, you know, people, I, I assume people, are we, are we like, you know, do we have more limiting beliefs now than we did like 60 years ago? Or is, is there some other interplay going on? I think, well, the thoughts come from limiting beliefs. I've always been intrigued by this connection. Why do certain people think they can do something? And why do certain people think they can't do things? And it's all, for me, what I think is happening is the thoughts that we have are coming from our limiting beliefs about ourselves. So if someone feels that they're not worthy or they're not good enough or they're not deserving or that it's not a safe world out there and um, they're going to be thinking 
their thought processes that are going to stop them from actually going out there and being visible, being seen in the world and from, you know, grabbing opportunities and doing new and different things. And for the people who feel that they have got the beliefs that actually I'm good enough, I'm okay, whatever happens to me, whatever I look like, however much I weigh, I'm good enough inherently as a person, they are much more likely to go out and try different things out and, um, you know, experience different things in life. So it's very much an attitude towards life that keeps you stuck where you are or gets you out there doing things. And for people who want to be, who, who think they want to be healthier, but they're actually not doing anything about it, there is something about being healthier that is scary that's stopping them from doing it. So it's finding out exactly what that person thinks is going to happen to them if they start eating healthier or if they start losing weight. What is the downside to making that change for them? And often there's something deep down in their subconscious that's saying you're not going to be safe if you make this change. Mm-hmm. And that's keeping them stuck where they are. Okay, but but also, but you know, there I'm sure we had, you know, people with limited limiting beliefs throughout throughout history is there's, there's is it that we just have more freedom now so that so that you know if you're like when you know our parents were growing up you had a, you got a job out of college or whatever or out of high school you did the work you you just you know there was more sort of paternalism and control so there there was uh you know the, the lanes were 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 narrower so that you couldn't get quite into quite as much trouble, but you also couldn't achieve quite as much. That now, now we have le- fewer limits, so it's easier to to be extraordinary, but it's also easier to to, to fall off the other side. Well, do you mean that we, did we have more discipline with our parents keeping us, you know, on a tighter rein than than well, now? Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out if, if you're saying that it's, it's the limiting beliefs that cause us to to engage in unhealthy behaviors, and then we, you know, we we have an obesity epidemic, but we didn't always. So if it's it, no. so it's not just like the limiting beliefs have to be in in a context that allows those limiting beliefs to to manifest. I'm trying to figure out like why do we have an obesity epidemic now and not 30 years ago if if the limiting beliefs are one of the core drivers? Well, I think our diets change. There's a lot more fast food and, you know, and unhealthy options available now than there were, say, 60 years ago. Also, there's a lot more couch potato mentality now. There's a lot more screen time, whereas we know when children were, from the previous generation, they were sent out to play every day, whereas now they can sit on a sofa and just, you know, play on their phone. So the lifestyle has changed, which gives a lot more opportunity for people not to exercise, not to go out. You can actually live within your your home and you don't, you don't have to go out at all. You can order food in. You can do whatever you need from your screen. So I think all of that's led to more of the um, obesity lifestyle that we have now and all the statistics that we have. But I think there's always been that the limiting beliefs have been around forever, I would guess, because there's always been this propensity to compare ourselves to other people and find that we fall short, that we're not enough in some way. And the people who take action and do something in their lives are the people who have the beliefs that it's safe, it's okay to go out and do that. And, you know, it doesn't, if they if they make a mistake, they're going to learn from it, it's absolutely fine. And the people who don't go out and make the changes in their lives there's fear, there's, um, there's real anxiety and worry about what will happen if they were to do that. And it's much safer just staying in their comfort zone and not doing anything, not making the changes. Hmm. So, you know, for, from an evolutionary perspective, like I get why we're hardwired to compare ourselves to others and to look for danger, right? It probably motivated us, you know, a million years ago to, you know, to work harder, to, you know, chase the saber-toothed tiger faster or whatever we were doing. Um, and it's, it's almost, it's a little bit uh, paradoxical that you would think if I believe that I'm not good enough, that I'll do more, I'll work harder. But you're saying it works the opposite. That if I have this belief that I'm not good enough, I kind of give up to some extent. Yes. And I think many people are worried about making mistakes and failing and being seen to be to have failed and made a mistake. So they don't even try. And it's funny because um, a lot of my clients have the belief mistakes and failure are bad. And when um, I say to them, look, if you were to replace mistakes and failure with learnings, would you say that learnings are bad? 
and that we will learn from stuff. And this is how we, you know, this is how we learn in life. This is how we grow. And I think there's this real thing because it, every, it's such a social world now, isn't it? Through social media, everything can be seen. And so if you try something and it doesn't work and you feel that you failed, you can look bad in front of other people, that's not going to motivate you to go out there and try different things. So if you, you know, you're going to go on a diet and you feel you're going to fail and you, know, you have to give up and then everyone will know this and it's going to make you look like you're weak, then it's, it's harder to go out there and actually try and do it. Or if you failed many times on a diet, what's the point of trying again? Because you probably fail again. So it's that way of thinking that, you know, negative loop of thinking that can stop you from trying again. Whereas if you think that learnings are actually positive and this is, a, you know, a wonderful gift, then you're going to have a different way of looking at it. So it can be the same thing, the same event, losing weight, but you, people look at it differently. They have different ways of seeing it through their own thought processes. And this is what is just intriguing about people, why we can look at the same thing and think completely differently about it. So I'm, I'm going back in my mind to my schooling, and I can't remember a teacher ever being happy about my learning. <laughs> Right. When, you, when you put it that way, like they were happy about my having already learned, <laughs> like, you know, I'd ace the test and they'd go, yay, great job. But I didn't learn anything by taking the test. But when I spelled a word wrong or got a problem wrong, like that was a demerit. That was a red mark. It was a, you know, I wasn't doing as well. And I wonder if, if, uh, if our culture, you know, our school culture convinces people that mistakes are bad. Yes, I think there's very much that. And it's not just teachers. It can also be parents and other authority figures that make us feel bad about ourselves if we don't get it right first time. But wouldn't it be wonderful if teachers in schools said, actually, you know, you did this wrong, but what a great learning for you. And now you can learn how to do it better. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it was all turned around like that and then we wouldn't be so scared of failing or doing something wrong? And I think people are really worried. They may not just be the doing something and not getting it right first time, which may worry them. It's how they're seen by other people. For example, you know, if someone puts out a website and it's not, it's not received well or it doesn't give them the response that they want, they worry and think, actually, you know, I can't, I can't do that again because I felt I failed and I didn't get, you know, the, the response I wanted from that. It's just a learning curve that we all go through. No one gets it right first time or gets it perfect. But I think we're so caught up with having to do things perfectly. Otherwise, we can't do it at all. It just has to be good enough. That's all it has to be. And then it can be improved over time. And I think that's what stops a lot of people from trying things because they think, what if it's not done perfectly? How will I be seen? I'll be, I might be rejected. People might laugh at me. They'll judge me. They'll criticize me. And that just keeps stops them from doing it. Hmm. So well, you know, one of the things I've learned is that actually no one really cares about me. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Not in a bad way, but like nobody's watching. And I think, you know, to some extent, our, we live in a very adolescent culture. Like it's, we're, we're sort of like stuck in like age 14 as a society and one of the things about age 14 is we tend to be very narcissistic and solipsistic. And we think that like everyone's looking at us. And I think with social media, that kind of reinforces this. But like, you know, we're all we're all worried about ourselves. We're not really paying that close attention to other people, are we? Absolutely. And I think this is one of our biggest insecurities that we're worried about how how we come across to other people. We need other people's approval to feel good about ourselves. And again, that's just giving away your responsibility, is giving away your power to other people. And this seems to be one of the most important things going on in our society right now, from you know, young kids right up to adults. We're so worried about being included, about being liked, that we try so hard, like I did, about wanting to be liked and saying the right thing, that we lose touch with who we really are. And I think this is one of the biggest problems that we have in society right now. And we spend a lot of time mind reading what other people are thinking about us. But actually, very few of us have the power of mind reading. <laughs> and often when we're mind reading what people are thinking about us, we're thinking the worst thing. Oh, he's looking at me like that. That means he doesn't like me. Or, you know, why is she not paying attention to what I'm saying? It means I'm boring. I've got nothing important to say. So we come to all these conclusions about ourselves based on, 
things that we're, we think other people are thinking about us. And it can really ruin our day and make us feel as if we're not good enough. But all that's happening is our thoughts are leading us down a blind alley and we're giving those thoughts so much importance, but actually we have no idea what people are thinking about us. And as you said, they're more interested in themselves than they are about us. And social media allows people to paint a very glossy version of their lives, which can make people think, well, actually, my life isn't as good as that person's. But it's all just a big illusion. So these, uh, these limiting beliefs that lead to the thoughts, that lead to our behaviors, that lead to our realities, um, when I have a thought, it doesn't feel like a thought to me. It feels like God's honest truth. Like, you know, mm-hmm. things like, well, that person's a jerk, or I could never um, control, you know, I could never sit down and eat and chew slowly, or, you know, v- various things that, you know, or that person is definitely out to get me, or, you know, this this law is a terrible thing. Like, you know, it, it's easier, I think, in the political sphere to to feel like, well, I'm right and they're wrong. But that carries over to, to most of my life, where the thoughts that I have really feel like objective, rational responses to reality. So how, how do you loosen my you know, relationship, my obsessive-compulsive relationship with my own thinking? Well, every this is what I believe, Howie. Every event goes on outside of our lives is completely a neutral event without any meaning. So if you think some law is rubbish, other people would think that law is good and valid and should be there. So if it was the law, the external event that was making you feel like that, everyone would feel the same about the law. So It has to be an inside job. It has to be the thoughts you're thinking about the law that is making you feel that way. It cannot be the external event itself. Otherwise, everyone would feel exactly the same about it. So that's one way of loosening that up, just knowing it's not the outside event that's making you feel like that. It's just your thoughts about the outside event that's making you feel like that. And also, it's the... It's the beliefs, that the limiting beliefs that you have, which are your unique set of limiting beliefs, as mine are unique, as everyone has their own unique set of limiting beliefs that causes us to view the world in a different way. So we all have completely different realities of what the world is. You see the world in a completely different way to how I see the world. And that can sometimes make it really difficult to see the other person's point of view, which is why we often think that we're right and the other person is wrong. And why can't they see things the way that we see it? Because we're so right and they're so wrong. But they're seeing the world from their own limiting beliefs and the thoughts that generate from their beliefs. They're seeing the world in a completely different way to us, which is why it's so hard to convince someone that they're wrong and we're right, because we can't literally stand in their shoes and see the world as they see it. And we're all all innocently doing this, you know, thinking that our version of reality is right. And we're just doing it because we believe our thinking and we think is absolutely true. And the world we see out there is set in concrete and it's absolutely real. And this is just how it is. It can't be any other way. And why can't someone else see see what we're seeing? Mm. So I, I get a little scared when I hear that. Like I'm thinking, well, so if, if I really believed that all events are neutral, then like I wouldn't fight for things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't care about stuff. I wouldn't, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a log that just went in the books in North Carolina that's extremely uh, hateful towards transgendered people and also um, is taking away a lot of civil liberties and things are going on like that. And, and I feel like if I actually believed that that had no intrinsic meaning, that it was just a neutral event that I'm attaching to. I'm worried that I'd go, well, okay, everything's cool. I don't, I'm not going to fight for, for, um, for animal welfare. I'm not going to fight for social justice because it's, it's, all, it's all just my own thinking and it's not objective reality. So I, I find myself pushing back a little bit. What, do, what would you say you know, to, to help me find a balance in, in reality? I think once we 
we think that that events have no inherent intrinsic meaning because otherwise we would all feel exactly the same about the event then we can just step back a little bit and maybe get a little bit of clarity because we're not giving meaning to the event and therefore we're not getting lots of negative emotions because our emotions come from our thoughts we're not getting lots of negative emotions running around through our mind and then when we step back and get that little bit of clarity I think that allows our, our wisdom to unfold and our wisdom is, you know, can give us all our really great values that we have about the world, about life and everything. And it doesn't mean you stop acting and doing things. I think you would act and do from a clearer space. And it just without maybe all the anger and the frustration and everything that goes around it. And it, you would just be acting more from, um, from a deeper place, maybe. But it doesn't mean you stop acting. You just sit back and think, I don't care what happens, you know, whatever happens, happens, it's fine. It just takes away that negative feeling, those negative emotions and stops the turmoil in our mind. Mm. See, that feels like a, a, a real leap of faith. And it feels like the same leap of faith when you're telling me, give up your negative self-beliefs. Because I, there's there's a part of me that is really attached to those negative self beliefs, <laughs> right? That I'm I I'm unworthy, therefore I have to try twice as hard. Um, I'm a, you know, so it's it's like if 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 I don't have that anger and that judgment, I feel like I'm just gonna like turn into a like a boneless you know slab of tofu. But you don't know that. I don't. I never. Don't I never. I've thinking, never tried, have I? And maybe taking you down that path and you're holding on to it and there's the resistance. It's the same when someone wants to lose weight and there's the resistance. I'm not worthy, you know, I can't do that. And, you know, what if I fail again and all the rest of it. And this is just your thoughts tricking you. Because what if you had, if you did eliminate your negative thoughts and you felt worthy and all the rest of it and you were still doing what was dear to you what really mattered to you you know helping uh, people to you know feel to live a healthier lifestyle but you were doing it from a place of worthiness and it all felt easier and you didn't have to use so much draining effort to get there but it just flowed more easily because you know there was um, that clarity and that focus and it was coming from a really nice place what if it was like that but you were still getting the results that you wanted, but it wasn't such a struggle. Mm, which, you know, I'm, what I'm thinking of is I have the most leverage and I get the best results with clients when I really don't care <laughs> whether they change or not. You know, where I have no, where I, I don't feel any sort of emotional charge if they tell me, well, I went out and ate a cheeseburger. Right. Mm. So, so with those people, I can really be effective. I'm much less effective with friends, exponentially less effective with family and, and hardly effective at all with myself. So like, it's, it's like the opposite, like the closer you are, the more leverage you think you have, but it's actually the, the, the farther away and the less emotionally attached you are. So, um, that's exactly it, because with the clients, you're less emotionally attached. With friends and family, you've, you've got something riding on it. Maybe you want them to see you as, you know, um, doing a great job for them, and therefore you put some pressure on yourself. But the pressure is simply a thought. I mean, what is pressure? Can you hold it in your hand? Is it, you know, what's stress? What's pressure? Maybe it's just a, a, a thought that makes you feel as if there's pressure. But you can just as easily think that thought that gives you no pressure at all. So stress is just a stressful thought. What if it's no more than that? And we think there's stress out there in the world, but you can't actually see stress. And why do some people have very demanding jobs and they don't feel stressed and some people do? If a stress was out there, we would shortly all have it if we were in a demanding job, but some people don't seem to have it. So it's the thoughts inside our head that make us feel a certain way. And that's why our feelings are the biggest, best indicator of what's happening in our lives right now. So if we're feeling good about things, our thoughts are doing a pretty good job for us. If we're not feeling good about things, it just means our thoughts are off kilter. And once we just 
get that and just see thoughts for what they are, just little bursts of energy, which we don't have to give any importance to, then, you know, life could be much easier. So I want to come back to something you, you mentioned earlier, which is if someone could wake up and be feel okay in themselves, regardless of their weight, regardless of their their health status, or regardless of anything, really. So, you know, in the, I came of age in the health education world when the, the big thing was the health belief model, which basically was a, a university version of carrot and stick, that if you tell people the dangers of what they're doing now and the benefits of changing, then they will. And so, you know, you had to really hit home, like the way you're eating is going to give you heart disease and cancer and, and diabetes and skin problems and premature aging and all this stuff. And you're, you're saying something very different, that you, you can move forward towards your health goals only when you stop feeling bad about where you are. If you're feeling bad about where you are, then that could be the motivator to change. It's the pain seesaw isn't it is it more painful to stay where you are or is it more painful to make the change so some people you know will move forward because they feel bad you know some people respond well to away from motivation and some people respond well to um towards motivation so they're feeling really bad about themselves they've seen a photo of themselves and they think i really need to make a change now and that photo can be the trigger the catalyst that can just get them moving forward however a lot of people when they're feeling bad they move forward then they feel actually, you know, this diet didn't work for me and I've just fallen back into my bad old ways again. Then they seem to have this feeling or this thought process that whatever I try is going to fail. But if you don't, if you feel you're worthy and you're good enough, then why wouldn't you want to have that body weight that you really want and look how you want to feel? Because you feel you deserve it. You feel you're worthy of it. And it will happen in a more organic, natural, easier way without having to use lots and lots of willpower. Because the reasons for staying um, overweight, they'll no longer be there. And you'll just naturally move towards wanting to feel healthy and, you know, look good. That's just going to be a natural way for you to want to be if you feel you're worthy and deserving of it. Mm, that reminds me of something I, I, I learned when I first started uh, my marketing career. A mentor told me that you know, the way most people do marketing is they go to their market and they say something like, you know, as if you're going to the stove and say, first give me heat, then I'll give you wood. And mm. it's almost like if you're that the health outcomes you're looking for are uh, are trailing indicators of like if you if you feel that you are worthy of, of health, then you'll become healthy as opposed to, you know, to look at my overweight body or my sick body and say, you know, you've got to get better before I can feel good about myself. You've got to lose 20 pounds before I can be okay. You've got to get your A1C under control before I will be an okay person. And you're saying it's just the opposite. You have to start with the thoughts and beliefs, and then the, the, the outcomes will follow naturally off, off, off of those. Absolutely. And, you know, we've all come across people who are overweight and, and they're completely happy. They're completely comfortable with it. They don't want to lose weight. They're, they're absolutely happy where they are. And they strike me as people who are very comfortable being who they are, whatever their weight. It doesn't bother them. It's fine. They're not going to lose weight to please society or anything else. They're just absolutely fine and happy and comfortable where they are. And that's absolutely fine. But I think I look at it as stepping stones. If someone's overeating, they're overeating for a reason. So maybe they're overeating because it provides some comfort. So if you can imagine three stepping stones, so they're on the first stepping stone and they're overeating. And the final stepping stone, the third one, is comfort. The middle stepping stone is the food that they're overeating on. So they feel that when they eat junk food, it brings them comfort. They get to the third stepping stone, the comfort. What if they could cut out the middle stone so from where they are now, they can just get comfort, but they could get it in a different way. So maybe they could get it by, you know, um, exercising or by reading a book or being with a loved one or whatever it is. 
they don't have to use food as a way of getting to the end result. All they want is the end result. They don't want the bit in the middle. So what if they could replace that with another way of getting that comfort? So how do you do that? Well, I use a technique with my clients because what's happening is they're associating very, very closely the comfort and the food. So I use a technique with clients that separates, disassociates the food with the comfort. So the two things are completely separate. They have nothing to do with each other. And we simply replace the, the eating with another way of getting the comfort, which is really beneficial for them or very easy for them to get. So one of my clients, a um, lovely lady, she said that she used to eat, overeat. She would just grab a, back, a packet of biscuits and just eat the whole packet of biscuits because she was really tired. It was her way of you know, just getting some energy. And I said, well, how else could you, you know, get that energy? And she said, well, I could have a nap. And I said, well, why don't you do that instead? And she said, well, because um, I'm elderly and I don't want people to think, oh, this old woman is asleep in the corner. Hmm. And again, she was just worried about what people were thinking of her. And I said, well, first of all, you don't know if anyone's going to be thinking that. And I said, my children, when they come home from school, you know, they sometimes used to have a nap. It doesn't mean that old people do it. You know, anyone can do it. There's things like power naps. Executives apparently do these in their offices. So, you know, people nap during the day. It's absolutely fine. It doesn't have to be associated with old age. And so she found that middle stone. She used that middle stone. She took away the food and replaced it with a nap. We called it a power nap to give her that energy, which was what she was ultimately looking for. And so just by dissociating the overeating or, you know, eating something that they don't particularly isn't healthy for them with the end result, then they, they stop doing that activity to get them that end result. They find another way of doing it in a much easier, nicer way. Mm. So that, that sounds like a really useful technique at the, at the level of actions and behaviors. But when we, when, when we started talking, you were, you were talking about like these really deep beliefs that we aren't even aware of. So can you use something like the, the biscuits and the power nap to, to like follow the roots of, of some sort of deep belief? Like I heard something in there, like she's afraid of being thought of as old you know, and maybe that's not the best example, but can, you know, how do we, how do we go from, okay, here's my day, here's my bad habits, here's my goals. How do we uncover, like an archaeologist, those beliefs? Well, one way would be to say um, to yourself, okay, why am I behaving like this? What do I believe about myself that makes me behave like this? Because often we have behavior patterns we keep repeating day in, day out. And when I sit down with a client, I, um, I find out exactly, you know, what their challenge is. And then we dig deep and then we start finding patterns of behavior. And then we dig a bit deeper and then we find, I use a particular technique to find their deepest, biggest limiting beliefs. So if someone can't work with someone, they want to do it for themselves, I would say, find, think about it. So what, what is it that you believe about yourself? And often there'll be things like, I'm not enough. So there's lots of, I'm not enoughs in this world. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not slim enough. I'm not um, successful enough. I'm not perfect enough. Whatever it is, there's lots of those. There's lots of very common limiting beliefs. Other beliefs could be things like, uh, it's not safe to be visible. So Also, I'm not important. Um, There's something wrong with me. I'll never get what I want. So it's quite difficult to find your limiting beliefs yourself. However, you can start thinking about what do I believe about myself that's causing me to behave like this? Because all our behaviours come from our beliefs. All our thoughts come from our beliefs. And it's the thoughts that are making you feel a certain way. And when you feel a certain way, you're taking certain actions in your life. Mm. So do you have an example uh, that we can maybe maybe relate to and understand. An example of a limiting belief. Yeah, let's say how uh, you know. So like the, the one like you know, one that I resonate with is well, this is the way it's always going to be. You know, it's like fu- fu- future. The future is is predicted by the past. So that so that it's it's a there, in embedded in that is like a real sense of 
hopelessness. Like no, there's nothing I can do. There's no, there's no locus of control here. And I think you know, a lot of people have that and it's at the core of things. So how, how do you, um, how does that play out? And how, and, I mean, it seems, it seems so true, you know, like e- even though I, I, you know, I and other people can look at our lives and say, well, look at all the changes I've made. Look at all the successes I've had. Look at all the times that I have grown. It's, it's like, those are outliers and they're, they're not relevant. <laughs> and the, and the, the few times or the few examples that reinforce those beliefs feel like the real ones. <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know what and I mean? Is, I know exactly what you mean. And this is the, the really powerful thing about beliefs because they're like magnets and they attract more and more into our lives. And we always want to be proved right. So every time there's a piece of evidence that we can interpret in a certain way to agree with our beliefs, we grab onto that evidence and we disregard all the other evidence which is pointing in the opposite direction. So when you've had things that, you know, have gone really well, you can disregard this and just hold on to all the evidence that's, you know, that's validating your belief. Oh, this is how it's always going to be. Nothing's ever going to change. I can't do anything about it. So beliefs, most self-limiting beliefs are formed in the first six years of our lives. So before we start questioning, we just take on board everything people are saying around us about us and and making sense of things and coming to conclusions about ourselves. And these are how limiting beliefs are formed. So when you, the problem with limiting beliefs is that, you know, they're formed in early childhood and we carry them into adult lives without realizing. And then we start repeating patterns and getting the same results again and again. So one thing would be to actually step back and say, I'm, I'm using this term that things are, this is how things are always going to be. Let's look at this always. Is this how things are always going to be? Or do I have evidence in my life to show me that things have been different to how they've, to, you know, have, have been different, they have worked out well for me? So once you know there's evidence in your life which shows you that things have worked out well for you, how can you go back to thinking this is how it's always going to be when you just acknowledged actually there are times when things have worked out well? And things when you times when you have been able to change things and do things differently. So once you take out that always, is are things always like this for all the time, no matter who you talk to, no matter what you do, no matter what you try? And if you can say hand on heart, yes, this is the case. This is the truth. A hundred percent of the time. Could you say that? That's. <laughs> uh, no, not really, no. So is this how things are always going to be for you? Yeah, so that's that's a, it's a rational argument. It's a rational argument. And then the self-belief, limiting self-belief will kick in and say, actually, yes, this is how, this, this is how things are and I can't change things. Right. So what I do with clients, which I can't do here because we haven't got the time, is I would take them through a technique to help them eliminate that belief. This is how things are always going to be. So I like to loosen things up by actually challenging them and saying, you know, are things always like this? Do you have evidence to prove that things haven't always been like this? And then we go into the actual exercise to help them to see that actually this belief, which they thought was part of their identity, part, you know, a fact, a truth about themselves it's actually not a truth at all, because if you can eliminate a belief, then it can't be the truth about you, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to eliminate it. And once they eliminate even their first belief, then they can see, maybe just on an intellectual level, that all the beliefs they held to be true about themselves and about other people and about the world are actually just made-up thoughts. They have as much energy as a thought, what am I going to have for dinner today? They have no more power or energy than that. But what we do is we take a completely innocent thought, we grab it, we keep thinking again and again, and that's when we give it power. But actually, all it is, that that thought, this is how it's always going to be, is just a little burst of energy. And if we don't grab onto it, if we don't give it any importance or any power, they'll just float right back through our mind Completely, mm. 
That seemed, that feels really important to me. The idea that when if we just don't grab onto something, that all then then we get proof that we didn't need it. And it reminds me of when I was a, a school teacher. We used to take kids up to uh, to a camping place and do like these adventure courses. And the mm-hmm. whole idea of the adventure course is like heightened perceived risk with no actual risk. So you know you'd be rappelling down a dam or you'd be walking. Uh, on a, a rope ladder way up, you know, 30, 40 feet in the air uh, between a couple of trees, and you're harnessed in so well that there's absolutely no danger, but it feels very scary. And there we had kids and adults, in fact, who couldn't take the first step. Like they were literally stuck up on the platform and they had to walk 20 feet and they could not take a single step. Because they were, and they knew it was irrational, right? They knew they were harnessed in. They saw it. They said, there's people on the ground. Like there was, there's literally no risk of danger. And yet their minds wouldn't let them take that step. And, and sometimes they couldn't and they'd have to, you know, be helped back down. But for mostly the kids, after like an hour, they would take a step. And that first step where they realized, I don't need to hold on to the, this thing that I thought was keeping me safe. Like that mm-hmm. just opens everything up. Like all of a sudden, everything in their life, not just walking the rest of the way, but all these other things become possible because that metaphor is so global that I need to hold on to this for safety. Absolutely. And, you know, we have to keep safe. That's our primal need that we have to feel safe. If we don't feel safe, we're not going to try something. If we think we're going to fail, we're not going to try something. But actually, it's just a thought that's stopping you from trying it. It's nothing more. And that exercise that you did, you were all watching exactly the same event. Some people could do it straight away and some people couldn't. And it was just the internal thoughts inside their heads that were allowing some people to take that step easily and for others not to take it easily. It's simply a thought and nothing else. And if you can imagine thoughts like clouds just drifting across the sky, They're just drifting by, and we don't have to grab onto any of them. We can just watch them go by and just have a lovely, clear mind. And from that clarity comes great insights and great wisdom and knowing what you want to do and how you're going to do it with ease and not having to struggle or worry about what people are going to think about us. And I think that's where some of our greatest actions can come from, from that place. If we just allow ourselves the luxury of just watching our thoughts float by and not taking them seriously. Mm. And, you know, like we're very concerned about our our bad habits, maybe, you know, our health. People who listen to this podcast, I suspect, are, you know, really interested in... um, in overcoming the bad habits. But the way you're describing it, these bad habits it sounds like they're sort of a gateway to like a really significant peace, joy, enlightenment. Like, like, you know, there where you're miserable, that's, there's a, a limiting belief waiting to be uncovered. There's some, um, you know, that we don't, we don't, we look at these things like, Oh, I'm so, you know, um, I'm so ashamed of being addicted to chocolate or I'm so lazy. I wish I could get up in the morning and exercise. And we push those things away. But if we sort of like move towards them and embrace them with, with curiosity and compassion, they can lead us to much bigger places than just, okay, now I'm slim and exercising. Yeah, if we just let go of all those, I know it's so easy to say, and it's not sometimes easy to do, but you're literally one thought away from feeling happier. Literally, one we all have that power of free thought. We're so lucky, and it can guide us through our lives. And we can choose in any moment, in any given moment, whether we want to be happy or unhappy. And it's simply the thoughts that can give us that feeling of happy or unhappiness. So why choose to feel unhappy? You know, even if any of your listeners are overweight, they can still choose to feel good about themselves in this moment. How is it benefiting anyone to feel bad about themselves and to beat themselves up? They can still take positive action from a place of just knowing they're absolutely okay, where they're sitting right now, where they're standing, where they are right now in this very moment. If they can ask themselves, am I okay right now? 
And the answer is yes, that's all they need right now. They don't need anything else. And it's just knowing, you know, if we take full responsibility for our thinking and know it's not the stuff out there that we can blame, we, it's not getting us anywhere doing that anymore. If we can just take full responsibility for our thoughts and how our thoughts make us feel, that alone could have a huge, make a huge difference to anyone's lives, just that understanding alone. Mm. I think I found the uh, the headline of the uh, or the, the the title of the podcast, which is uh, Nina Cook on being one thought away from happiness. That's that's really profound, and and it feels so true and so empowering. It is, and this lovely gift of free will, you know, free thought. How we use it is up to us, and it is a gift, and we can use it wisely. We can use it foolishly, but. Why not just feel good as much as we can? Why can we just choose that instead of beating ourselves up and feeling we're not enough? Right. So for, for folks who want to learn more, who want to you know, read more of your, your, your writings or get in touch with you and maybe work with you, uh, how can they do that? Well, um, they can visit my website, which is Nina Cook, N-I-N-A-C-O-O-K-E dot co dot U-K. And they can read some of the stuff there. The website is angled towards business owners. I work with, I love working with business owners. I love working with non-business owners. So they can, you know, have a look on the website. They can sign up and, um, you know, if they want to have a chat with me about anything, I'm more than happy to talk to them. And, um, yeah, that's probably the best way of getting in touch with me through my website. Great. Well, Nina Cook, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you. It's great to be reminded of these things because, you know, they're, they're like, you know, spiritual traditions throughout history teach this stuff. But for he hearing it from you in a very sort of, you know, modern, on the ground, working with actual people and getting results way, it, it definitely sort of bol bolsters my own sense of what's possible. So uh, I, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for taking the time. And I wish you all the best. Thank you, Howie. And anything is possible. The way I change how I feel about life and about myself, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Right on. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on over 150 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the email newsletter, please go sign up at plantyourself.com. You'll get articles, links to my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, plus my grammar is way better in writing. Big thanks this week to podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, and Rachel Behrens. Thank you guys so much for your generous support of this podcast. If you would like to support this podcast and your name is not on that list, you can do so in a bunch of ways. You can share this and other episodes on social media and via email with anyone you think would like to listen. You can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can become a patron. You can support this show with a one-time amount or an ongoing donation, and you can do so over at plantyourself.com. Just check out the right sidebar. There's a couple of very obvious links there to uh, donate, become a patron, Click on that, and it will take you through the rest of it. Next week on the podcast, cellist Bob Cafaro was enjoying a wonderful career as a professional cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra when his career and life was turned upside down by multiple sclerosis, MS. And in our conversation, we cover how he battled and ultimately beat this disease, this supposedly incurable disease, through mindset, through lifestyle, through diet, through Western medicine. It's an inspiring story. And I left that conversation really inspired, really jazzed, and I'm really excited to share it with you next week. And that will be episode number 153. In garden news, um, very much related to the idea of solving problems at their roots that we covered in this podcast today, my wife, Mia, has been systematically reclaiming garden beds from this stuff called Bermuda grass that grows 
insidiously. It doesn't put down deep roots, but wherever it grows, it puts down these mats that connect and you pull up one and you realize like everything's connected and it's growing all over the place. And it's pretty much blocking any other plant from, from gaining a foothold in that soil. It's, it's nasty stuff. I see it for sale, seeds of Bermuda grass for sale at the garden store. And I can't imagine why anyone would want to plant that anywhere near something that you're growing for food. Anyway, we thought we could overcome this thing with, uh, it was, you know, there was some in the garden when we moved in a couple of years ago. And so we put down all this cardboard and wood chips on top and figured, well, that'll just kill it. It, it turns out we provided the perfect growth medium for this Bermuda grass. And we didn't know at the time, but uh, later in the summer, we saw the little shoots coming up. We pulled back the cardboard and we realized that this stuff was just happy as clams under there and just waiting to spread and take over the entire garden. So that didn't work. We went on um, websites, looking on forums, looking for advice. And even on the organic gardening forums, there were people who were like, dude, you can't beat Bermuda grass. Just pour Roundup on it and be done with it. And, you know, Roundup is this Monsanto poison that we would never put anywhere near our fruits and vegetables. You know, we don't want to solve one problem, Bermuda grass, by adding another problem, uh, poisons in our food. So that wasn't going to work. So now, Mia's out there in the garden for hours a day, pulling out this Bermuda grass by hand, by the roots, using a pitchfork and making sure she gets it all. Because if we leave one stalk, one root, one rhizome, then it just proliferates. So this, and I helped her over the weekend, and this was long, painstaking, dirty, cramped, backachy work. But it's the way to go forward if you want to solve problems at their roots. And so my wish for you, is uh, less backachy and maybe less dirty and less long and less painstaking. But to have the energy, the focus, and the courage and the willpower to face your problems at their roots. And as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>